This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by University of North Carolina Press. One book we think you'd like is Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide by Lane Windham. Union power has declined dramatically since the 1970s. Some have argued that the crisis took root when unions stopped reaching out to workers and workers turned away from unions. But Lane Windham tells a different story, highlighting the often overlooked contributions of women, people of color, young workers, and Southerners. In the 1970s, these workers combined the tools of unions and labor law with gains from the civil rights and women's rights movements to fight back against bosses and corporations. According to Nancy McLean, anyone who cares about work and workers in today's America should read this book. Overturning myths that are widely believed, Wyndham arouses both hope and outrage as she makes fresh sense of the staggering rise of inequality since the 1970s. Knocking on Labor's Door by Lane Wyndham, out now from UNC Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Houston now confronts what will no doubt be a long, painful, and expensive recovery. The storm is also, however, a warning to us all. We must take a hard look at the fact that climate change is making these storms more powerful, more frequent, and more dangerous. Trump might be fiddling while Paris burns. Apologies for that pun. It's the best I've got. But what exactly have his predecessors accomplished? It's not as though he invented doing little to nothing or worse about global warming as the planet careens towards catastrophe. My guest today is Kate Aronoff, a writing fellow at In These Times covering climate and American politics. She and a bunch of other smart people have articles in Earth, Wind, and Fire, the most recent issue of Jacobin on the ecological crisis. And before we get started, you have probably noticed that we added a second weekly show. To keep that up, we need your support. So please, if you haven't already, press pause now and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig and make a contribution. A dollar helps. A few more dollars helps more. I also want to encourage you to make a donation to Houston. There are a lot of worthy operations on the ground, but I'm going to suggest that you make a donation to the Houston Coalition for the Homeless. You can do that at homelesshouston.org slash take hyphen action slash donate. That's homelesshouston.org slash take hyphen action slash donate. I'll put that URL in the show notes. Kate Aronoff, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. As we're recording this, Hurricane Harvey continues to devastate Houston and the Texas Gulf Coast. What can be said about the role climate change has played in this storm? When you think about climate change and its 
relationship to specific weather events, it's actually really hard to draw sort of direct uh, direct correlation between um, between storms and kind of rising temperatures and rising emissions. But um, there are a couple of things we know, and I'm you know for full disclosure not not any sort of scientist and don't don't spend most of my days kind of looking at looking at the science of climate change. Um, but one of the biggest contributors was the fact that uh, the waters in the Gulf of Mexico are much, much warmer uh, than they have been in uh, the last, than in the last several years. And storms really feed on this kind of warm water. So that's why you get um, this, this sort of super storm that, that is in, in some cases stronger than it would have been otherwise. Uh, Michael Mann, who is a um, climate scientist at the, at the uh, Penn State University, um, has said that the storm surge in Houston was uh, half a foot higher than it would have been um, a decade ago. Um, and, wow. you know, yeah, uh, uh, he's he's a sort of great person to go to in part because and part of why um, these things are a little bit hard to talk about uh, is because scientists and climate scientists uh, tend to be sort of cautious to a fault. I mean, they, they don't, you know, aren't as a profession kind of prone to making uh, making these kind of direct lines to talking about um, any sort of like correlation or causality and, and, and just, you know, tend to be sort of um, sort of cautious and understandably so about um, about making direct links um, between, you know, any weather event and um, and these the sort of broader changes that are happening in the atmosphere. One of the metaphors I've heard used to kind of talk about this is, is uh, sort of alluding to big tobacco uh, and, and some of the fights against, against that. And that if any individual person gets cancer and is a smoker, you can't blame a specific company uh, for, uh, for that person's cancer. But there's a very good chance that they're or smoking. Or a specific cigarette. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but there's a very good chance that uh, their smoking had something to do with it and being marketed to by cigarette companies had something to do with it. Um, and so you can, you know, draw... And you can say on a statistical level that uh, X percentage of people who died from lung cancer um, likely died because of of cigarettes. You can draw more aggregate level conclusions. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, we can we can make kind of similar links to uh, the extractive industry and uh, storms like storms like uh, Harvey in that, you know, about 100 companies, exactly 100 companies are responsible for, I think, over 70 percent of emissions since the mid 80s. Uh, and so, you know, you can't blame ExxonMobil for Hurricane Harvey, but, you know, you can say that they definitely had something to do with it. I spoke about this in my interview with Emily Atkin, but wanted to hear your thoughts about it. Um, science obviously has a hard time talking about the relationship between global warming and severe weather in a way that's translatable to the sort of politically compelling language that can make people understand the connections. What do you think about the media's role as translators, um, as interpreters in this process? Have they done a very good job so far um, giving the global warming context? I'm um, talking about mainstream TV and, and print media. Uh, no, no, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> I think it's been you know, pretty flagrantly irresponsible to watch not just Fox News, who you kind of expect to toe a 
sort of denialist line, but places like MSNBC and CNN, who sort of position themselves as oppositional media, um, really failing to ask this question of, you know, why is it that Houston has had uh, three 500-year floods in the last three years? And and it's it's hard to have a, a kind of intellectually honest conversation about uh, Hurricane Harvey without without talking about this. Um, and the fact that uh, you can have politicians like Ted Cruz going on going on CNN and and kind of talking about uh, Hurricane Harvey and not being asked a pretty basic question of do you believe this is linked to um, to climate change is 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 pretty astounding and I think that's that's a real fault of of how the mainstream media works and just the kind of various efforts to depoliticize what's happening and it's it's not you know it's it's depoliticized in some sense and perfectly politicized in others I. Uh, have seen CNN kind of rightly um, calling out uh, calling out politicians who voted against aid for victims of Hurricane Sandy, who are now asking for uh, money for for people impacted by Harvey. So that's that's fair, and it's also political. So the idea that that we can't kind of um, politicize this by talking about climate change and by talking about any of the other kind of myriad issues which have turned. Um, turned Harvey into, into a, a, a human disaster uh, beyond kind of a, a, a physical one, uh, I, I think is, is a real lack. And, and it's, it's, yeah, I think it's too late. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's well past time that, that we started having an honest conversation in, uh, in the mainstream media about uh, the relationship between um, these kinds of more more frequent uh, weather events and uh, the fact that that our earth is getting warmer. Yeah, I mean, not only are these extreme weather events already and inherently political, there's also a whole politics to this notion of don't politicize disasters. There's a, an implicit politics to that whole idea. Right, exactly. And, and, and it's I mean, funny is kind of the wrong word. I don't, I don't know what the what the right word is, is, is to talk about it. But um, these events are always politicized. Look, I mean, just look at um, what happened in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, massive levels of privatization. Uh, the the city school system was almost entirely privatized. Uh, Naomi Klein has done a lot of a lot of work about this. Obviously, um, it's kind of like the quintessential example of a shock doctrine of, of kind of capitalists sort of coming in and, and taking advantage of people who um, are people in, in whole cities um, who are in a moment of real suffering and using it to kind of inject this really radical sort of free market doctrine um, into it. And so, you know, the, the historical record shows that uh, these crises are politicized. And I think, you know, it, it's in part a responsibility of the left to be pushing, uh, pushing that line and saying, you know, it's, uh, if we're operating on sort of a terrain where this is politicized already, um, and, and will continue to be more so as, as recovery efforts kind of, um, kind of proceed, then we need to be talking about what does, uh, politicizing this in the right ways look like? How can we, um, you know, think about this as an opportunity to talk about some of these broader issues, whether that's, you know, climate change, whether that's sort of irresponsible forms of coastal development, uh, 
city planning and zoning, the fact that you know these refineries are um, just a couple, uh, the refineries in Houston um, are just a couple of feet above sea level and extremely vulnerable to any sort of disaster. Um, I think those are those are you know, I don't think we should be afraid to to bring those issues up. At the same time as having tremendous empathy for people who have had their lives really ripped apart, and I don't think those two things are are in contradiction at all. Both you and your colleague. Daniel Aldana Cohen wrote critiques of the New York Magazine viral 7,000-word cover story about climate change, which I think are relevant to this all. Cohen wrote, The actually realistic danger zone is a combination of too little decarbonization too late in the context of hardening inequalities of class, race, and gender. In short, eco-apartheid. Those brutal inequalities and the bullets that maintain them not molecules of methane, are what will kill people. Um, speaking of the the unstated politics of this disaster, how have we seen inequality playing out in Houston? We'll see even more of this as, as the days go on and we get more news about, about what's happening. Um, but, but two things really come to mind. I mean, the first happened before the storm even uh, with Border Patrol agents say they would keep uh, keep checkpoints open um, in the Rio Grande Valley uh, as as the storm is coming through. Basically, what they said is, as long as the highways are open, we will be there, uh, which is uh, frankly really irresponsible um, and, and borderline deadly for um, undocumented immigrants who you know might hear that and say, "Fuck, like it's I can risk you know staying and and uh, and." and being here for the storm and, and risking my life potentially, or I can risk deportation by trying to get get out of harm's way, um, and and it's it's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, that's like a, a it's it's really a, a, a kind of devil's bargain, and that, I don't know if that's quite the right the right phrase, but um, forcing people to make that choice, I think, is is really sort of um, like Daniel said, one of the the kind of horrors of how of how climate change is going to play out. In Houston, is it clear yet how the inequalities on the ground are shaping the impact of the storm? I mean, compared to Katrina, um, which really did seem very disproportionately focused on poor black Louisianans, the pictures coming out of Houston seem to show a mix of of, uh, people from all walks of life getting evacuated and in boats, um, how how do you parse the the impact of inequality so far with Harvey? Yeah, the big one I've seen so far is that uh, a lot of uh, Houston's refineries, of which there are many, and in in towns kind of around Houston, um, like Port Arthur, Texas, uh, are uh, predominantly communities of color uh, that have been kind of fighting the impacts of these refineries for. Um, for generations, really. I mean, as long as they've been there, um, they've they've you know had uh, worse quality air, worse water, um, higher incidence of cancer and other sorts of diseases. Um, so, with the storm coming through, um, that again kind of magnifies that um, those impacts. I mean, you're you're hearing these these sort of foreboding reports of <laughs> there are. Um, you know, different sorts of industrial facilities um, that are very precarious right now and, and, and questions of, you know, uh, can they keep out this much water to prevent sort of massive spills? Um, 
certain refineries have already emitted more emissions, extra emissions, um, as a result of certain systems breaking down um, from the floods. Um, and that is going to hurt the people who live in the communities around them, which, you know, as is the case, not just in Houston, but um, basically anywhere where uh, fossil fuel infrastructure exists um, tend to be poor communities, tend to be um, black and brown communities. And I anticipate it'll also be in the recovery that we see a really intense political economic disparity in the impact of this storm. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, reading something recently that something like 85% of residents, I can't remember if it was a Houston or Texas more generally who were um, impacted by the storm don't have flood insurance, um, which, you know, we can talk more about, but uh, it will make it much, much harder for um, people to um, people to kind of bounce back from this. And, and you know, the, the sort of broader inequality baked into some of these federal programs is that if you don't have kind of enormous patience for wading through like endless, endless layers of red tape to apply for aid, um, then you might just not get aid. I mean, there are stories after Sandy here in, um, here in New York of people who, you know, had gone through weeks and months long processes of trying to get their homes rebuilt, um, from, from different federal agencies. And at some point just gave up and, and, you know, couldn't, couldn't deal with it anymore and, and had to kind of move on with their lives. So, um, it's, it's, yeah, I think that's a little more, one of the kind, kind of more subtle ways that that, that um, recovery effort sort of breaks down, um, but you know, is no less um, no less damaging from from the fact that you know you might see um, in, increasing kind of pushes of gentrification in poor neighborhoods like we saw after after Katrina um, and these kind of like rebranding efforts to, to you know build the city back in a way that's more friendly to capital um, than it than it was earlier. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the, the other thing to mention here is that we should never really underestimate how creative uh, vulture capitalists can be uh, in in the aftermath of these things. I mean, thinking of you know totally new ways to um, destroy the public sphere and 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 rapidly kind of bring in a, a private sector quote unquote solutions um, for these things. It's, I think you know that's that's something to watch out for. Is just we don't we don't totally know what the um, what the roadmap looks like for them. And they're, you know, I'm sure there are people actively plotting ways right now um, to take advantage of, of this situation. Zooming out a little bit, I want to get into the recent history of climate politics. Trump is obviously intent on facilitating the rapid destruction of the earth because he prizes the interests of big money friends over science that he probably doesn't really understand very well. Nearly nine months in, can you lay out what Trump has done so far on climate? It's hard to keep track, honestly, uh, <laughs> of everything. Uh, I mean, that's my job um, to do that. But uh, really, <laughs> right out of the gate, he, um, he, in ways that were even, even surprising to me, and I think other people who pay attention to these things, um, prioritized really expanding um expanding fossil fuel infrastructure, making way um, for uh, for more fossil fuel development. Um, so I think within four or five days of, of taking office, he 
signed uh, signed an executive order, kind of green lighting uh, the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines, um, which had both been defeated, um, I think, in, in large part due to uh, pressure from popular movements against them. Uh, and, you know, on the, on the one hand, that's because I think Trump loves pipelines and a lot of his friends um, love pipelines. And I think it was also kind of a fuck you to the uh, people who had fought them and, and, you know, kind of making clear right off the gate that I don't care <laughs> about um, about these, these campaigns. Um, and... You know, that, that's uh, on top of uh, bringing in Scott Pruitt um, as director of the EPA, who's uh, managed to be one of the more kind of quietly efficient uh, members of the administration. He gets a little less heat than, um, you know, p- other people uh, like Bannon and, and, and other folks who, uh, or even Betsy DeVos, um, and has just been making He keeps a real his head work. down and works. <laughs> Yeah, and he works hard. He works hard, um, and has has you know beyond kind of striking mentions of climate change um, from from uh, various various websites um, from the federal government uh, is really attempting to to roll back um, different regulations uh, that are um, really key. I think the big the big prize and and what he seems to be making motions toward uh, is repealing something called the endangerment finding, um, which gives uh, the EPA the authority to um, regulate carbon emissions at all. Um, and, you know, there's there's debate about how far, how far he'll get with that, but that's been the sort of ultimate prize um, for a while and, and is, you know, has been, uh, things like that have been part of Pruitt's ideological project for a long time. He was uh, one of the, one of the biggest proponents of, of something called cooperative federalism, which is a sort of legal doctrine um, about kind of decentralizing, um, decentralizing control from federal agencies. Um, and, you know, hosted a conference on this several years back and, and as part of that sued, had sued the EPA, I think 13 or 14 times, um, before becoming its head. So, you know, he's really on this, on this mission to kind of, um, destroy it from within. And then, you know, there are these, these other things like appointing, um, Rex Tillerson, the longtime, um, CEO of ExxonMobil, who's never had a job that was not ExxonMobil, um, to Secretary of State. Um, and thankfully, he seems genuinely pretty incompetent at that job. Uh, he does not seem to really know how to be sec- Secretary of State, much less like it uh, very much. Um, but again, it's sort of, you know, uh, this thing that would have been, uh, in my mind, kind of unthinkable um, several, several months ago. Um, and is is now kind of just the the reality we're living in. And I think a lot of these a lot of these sort of um, regulatory rollbacks, appointments, things like that, um, are playing out kind of quietly, just because it's it's a little more wonky, it's a little more um, unsexy politically to talk about. Um, but I think you know is one of the areas where the Trump administration has actually been most effective um, in in kind of feeling things back. Yet th- things like the Dakota Access and Keystone XL pipelines are of pretty significant political importance to Trump. I think they're kind of iconic of the sort of extractive industries that he touted as the means to make America great again during his campaign, the sorts of things that he pointed to when he pulled out of 
Paris and said, you know, I'm with Pittsburgh, not Paris, even though Pittsburgh doesn't uh, hasn't been a steel city for quite a while. Um, It doesn't really matter because he really likes these uh, kind of retro icons of of masculine, extractive um, prosperity. Yeah, I mean, and and the economic question here is huge. Um, Like Bryce Covert wrote wrote this piece um, a couple months back, just kind of pointing out that um, most of America's working class are not working in the extractive sector and are not even working in kind of manufacturing. I think there are um, you know, 70,000 coal workers um, in the country, um, which is, you know, a fraction of the number of, of sort of service workers and um, so-called like pink collar jobs, which, which you know, employ um, most of most of the country's working class. But it all, you know, for, for Trump, it's really all about um, these questions of identity. And, and if, you know, he can kind of create this image that he's helping us sort of like downwardly mobile, uh, you know, white white working class is kind of, you know, in some ways a fiction that he's created, um, then that's what he'll do. And I think the, the ties between that and kind of expanding, um, expanding the extractive industry are, are, are pretty clear just because they are this, you know, coal miners are sort of this quintessential image of what the what the working class looks like that, you know, as you said, is pretty outdated. Yeah. And even though it is a, a bit of a, a fiction that he's created, um, at the same time, I think it's important not to dismiss, obviously, first, the concerns of people in actual coal communities who've certainly been abandoned by uh, people uh, across the bipartisan political establishment, but then even more broadly to really think through why why it is sort of a salient icon for um, an imagined America that did have a, a stronger economy that supported a more widespread prosperity. I think when it comes to Trump and sort of uh, climate advocates and environmental advocates, I think that uh, there's a sense in which these two sides sort of like talk past each other when it comes to um, thinking about coal communities. Um, On the one hand, Trump is trying to like resurrect this industry, which uh, in reality has been the main driver of job loss in, uh, in West Virginia and, and Kentucky and, and other, you know, states whose whose economies have been heavily dependent on coal um, by, you know, integrating different kinds of mining processes, um, outsourcing workers from outside of the areas where mines actually exist. Um, And then, you know, you have kind of a narrative in in climate circles that, and, you know, in the the Democratic Party, I think, um, in particular, that these places are sort of backwards and that these people don't have um, jobs or, you know, that uh, from climate people in particular, that coal miners can just sort of pick up and go get a job in, in the solar industry or uh, building wind turbines and that there are just so many other jobs um, they could do. And, you know, it's not really the case, um, especially not right now um, for a lot of people. And I think there's there's a real um, lack of um, respect for the fact that, that the coal industry really has helped build um, the country and that that wasn't, you know, the, the, um, the work of coal executives, but was the work of, um, mining communities and, and, and people who, um, whose families have worked in, in the mines for generations. Um, and that's a, a really strong part of people's identity. And I don't think we should, you know, dismiss that. Um, and, you know, I think that in, in thinking about any sort of just transition away from fossil fuels, um, I, I do think that, that, Coal communities have a kind of um, 
out, outsized role to play in, 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 you know, in, in driving that transition. And, and we have not been very good as a country transitioning um, into, into different um, types of economic activity. Um, and I think that you know, paying close attention to um, the folks who um, are going to be worse hit in a move away from fossil fuels is, is really important. So speaking of the failure to have a compelling message on that or really any subject, I want to talk about the mainstream liberal climate agenda. In a recent piece of The Nation, you wrote that Al Gore's new movie, um, which is called Surprise, Surprise, An Inconvenient Sequel, failed to address climate change in a politically compelling way. Um, you write that it puts a, forth a quote, West Wing theory of climate politics. What do you mean by that? Gore is kind of part of a, a larger trend here. I mean, what I was talking about in relationship to the movie is that at least half of the film, uh, we're kind of following Al Gore around like hallways in Paris <laughs> um, in the in the um, Paris climate talk. So it is this, you know, almost literally West Wing type of setup where he's like walking down hallways very quickly and talking to people. Um, Which like and, is a sort of image that plays perfectly into Trump's caricature of Pittsburgh versus Paris. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think that that's kind of the bigger issue here. Um, I mean, you know, not to not to denigrate um, some of the genuinely really important work that Al Gore has done. I think he he really woke a lot of people up to climate change. Um, was certainly something that that I you know paid a lot of attention to as a kid was watching his film and realizing this was a problem. Um, but I think what you see in in, in the movie and, and from him and a couple other characters um, in the climate climate smear sphere more generally um it's this really sort of outdated way of thinking about politics i mean he has this idea that if you can just sort of call up like somebody in the modi government um and and convince them that uh that uh, transitioning over to renewables will be good for their economy then that's going to get it done um or that you know if you have enough conversations with people like elon musk uh then you know climate change will will be averted um and I think it's 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 really I think kind of dangerous. I mean, it's wrong on, on one level, just <laughs> from a perspective of like how change happens. Um, but I also think it's it's really sort of um, uh, a, a dangerous situation to be in when uh, it makes the right's job much easier. Uh, it makes it easier for the right to talk about uh, climate as being something that only elites care about, that only you know people with the luxury. Um, the luxury to, to, to think about um, this thing that's happening sort of far off in the future, um, care about. Uh, and, and, you know, having uh, people like Al Gore, people like Elon Musk or Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, these sort of Davos regulars uh, as, the, as the some of the most visible faces of the climate fight puts us in this really sort of uh, horrible position of making the rights argument for them. Uh, and so I, I think it's, it's, wait, it's, you're saying that people don't identify their, see their own life stories in those of the Davos elite. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know who does. I mean, maybe if, if you also <laughs> go to Davos then you do as well, but, <laughs> um, you, you also wrote that one of the problems with, that the problems with Gore's argument echo those problems that ultimately helped sink Hillary Clinton's campaign, namely that they 
highlight what's wrong with the other side instead of putting forward a positive and compelling agenda as an attractive alternative. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the the other half of the movie, which is not kind of watching gore on conference calls with, with various <laughs> dignitaries, is um, uh, just these these slideshows of, of horrible, horrible um, weather events. I mean, the typhoons, floods, all this stuff. Um, there are, you know, scenes of him kind of like putting new videos into the slideshow. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 very, you know, kind of really similar to what the Clinton campaign did is uh, operating from this logic that if we just, you know, show people how bad it is, if we just show people um, how horrifying this, this, this future could be, um, then they will believe us, <laughs> which didn't work for the Clinton campaign. And I don't think what will be what works with climate. I mean, there are very, um, you know, compelling, I think, reasons for um, a, a much wider swath of the population and currently thinks about climate change to um, really think about this as, as not just a sort of um, existential problem, but actually is something which um, could bring with it a, a kind of fairer and more democratic economy. And it's pretty disappointing that that Gore doesn't really make that connection. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. It seems like the mainstream liberal failure to make that sort of argument about climate change um, which allows um, the extractive industries and their political allies to set up this dynamic where um, environmentalists are on on one side and the people and business are aligned together on the other. How did business succeed in recent decades of convincing some significant portion of Americans of thinking that at least on environmental issues, their interests were one and the same? Uh, well, a lot of it has to do with money. I mean, fossil fuel companies have spent, you know, untold like millions of dollars um, on ad campaigns and um, parts of Appalachia. Um, really just sort of, uh, yeah, trying to convince people of exactly that, that, you know, the interests of business and, um, and, and working people are aligned. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I guess to talk about, talk about sort of the two sides of it, there's that, there's sort of industry propaganda, um, and some of which really, you know, isn't propaganda. I mean, like we were talking about coal communities earlier, um, there, there is a real sense that, that, um, the coal industry has, has made people's lives better um, and brought, you know, has been some of the only economic activity in certain parts of the country for a very long time. Um, and that, that has not been true of the last several decades. But, um, 
you know, that that's not a hard case to make. If, if your whole family has worked for um, coal companies for generations, then that's what you know. And, and that's, you know, I, I don't <laughs> uh, uh, chide people for, for thinking that. And I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a case of sort of false consciousness that, that people believe that, um, especially when there's not kind of a better plan on offer, which is the sort of other, you know, flip side of this is that environmentalists, um, since environmentalism has been kind of a thing, uh, have not uh, been terribly good at paying attention to um, the needs and concerns of working people. Uh, it's it's existed in this kind of like higher, you know, higher realm of thinking that you know we need to have a concern for the planet and um, the trees and and uh, the atmosphere and, and talking about certain kinds of gases um, that any you know average person doesn't doesn't have a, a super clear reason to care about, <laughs> especially when they're, you know, trying to put food on the table or put a roof over their head. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to say that those things are comparative. I think a lot of it is, you know, sheer kind of force of um, money and propaganda from um, the fossil fuel industry. But I think it's also, um, you know, the, the environmental movement and climate movement um, has historically made it kind of easy to make those critiques. Even as the extractive industries wage this well-funded propaganda climate campaign of climate denialism, um, mainstream envir- the, the same mainstream environmental groups that are failing to put forward a compelling transformational message about climate change are also arguing that it's in corporate America's interest to to deal with the problem, which doesn't seem like the best way, uh, which both on a policy level seems like a bad idea and also doesn't seem like a great way to rally people to the cause. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, there. there's like deep... Shout out to Carl Pope. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to Carl Pope, yeah. I mean, there's deep history here and like why that has happened. Um, I think a lot of it goes back to... Um, you know, two people, people like Pope um, and people like Fred Krupp at the Environmental Defense Fund, um, who, you know, around the time that, that uh, Bill Clinton and, and his advisors were crafting this kind of third um, third way strategy, there was something in, in um, the environmental movement called the third stage, um, which, which uh, came from a very similar operating logic that um, these campaigns shouldn't be as confrontational, um, that we should really try to make um, make amends with the right and appeal to the kind of rational business interests um, of conservatives and of of of, of um, big corporations um, to you know get on their side basically and so that's why part of why um, you know you, you hear these sort of bizarre arguments that you know you can save all this money if you if you switch over to to fossil fuels um, and it's it's confusing in part because it's like it, it's hard to see who that's really for I mean. Corporations don't really need to be told to save money. They have, you know, teams and teams of people figuring out how to do that. Um, so if it's in their kind of like sober economic interest to... They've probably um, already so figured it out. Uh-huh. And some are. I mean, you know, you have firms like Blackstone um, who are, you know, actively figuring out ways to strip um, fossil fuels from there. Um, from their investment portfolio because it simply, you know, they don't see a profit in it. Um, but to have that be kind of a, a strategy for 
um, the climate movement to be making that argument. It's just it's just kind of bizarre in part because you know the the object of that is um, are these companies who are you know inherently conservative and doing other bad things in the world, um, and because it really forgets about um, the rest of people in in this country um, and and can be I think kind of alienated to make a to make an argument that's so aimed at at elites. Well, before we get any farther, maybe we should pause and you could just lay out what that positive left-wing climate agenda that we're not hearing from either Al Gore or the mainstream environmental groups. What 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 would that look like or what does it look like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think and and we do have some examples of, of what this could look like um, already. I've written a, a decent amount about rural electric cooperatives, which are um, complicated institutions uh, run largely off coal, um, are very sort of bureaucratic, but are nominally democratically owned um, and have their roots in this kind of um, New Deal, um, New Deal progressivism. Um, that was was intended to provide affordable affordable power to people and economic development, um, and I think we we can you know look to that uh, the, the sort of genesis of of the rural electric cooperatives for um, some inspiration, especially um, as we face a problem with renewable energy that's kind of similar to the problem that created. Um, created the, those co-ops in the first place was that some 90% of rural homes uh, lacked electricity and it was, you know, inaccessible to them because the private market failed to provide it. Um, so, you know, it, these these institutions were, were framed as kind of providing broader economic development. And I think we can we can do a very similar thing with wind and, and solar. Um, you know, you can you can imagine kind of publicly owned, um, publicly owned utilities um, creating massive numbers of jobs to scale up um, wind and, and uh, solar at a local level and make that more easily accessible for people um, in, in different towns and cities. Um, I think, you know, the other thing is just on a, on a broader scale, kind of upending who holds power in our economy. So um, the fossil fuel industry is one of the most powerful, um, powerful industries in, in, in you know, capitalism. Uh, and if you, you know, drive forward a kind of successful drive to nationalize them or in some way rapidly scale back their power, that creates a real precedent for other industries. I mean, people talk a lot about, you know, agriculture and climate change. Um, if you nationalize Exxon, you can nationalize Monsanto. Um, and, and you know, have that be the sort of crux of a, of a populist uh, demand uh, for, uh, for a, a climate movement that's, that's really um, looking at how to, how to win popular support. And I think the other thing um, is uh, something like a, a federal job guarantee um, about, about climate, which, which different folks have written a lot about. But um, simply put, we have a lot of work to do um, in, in, in the, the lead up to um, not just mitigating climate change, but also um, protecting cities and, and, and different places against um, against the impacts that are already um, kind of locked in 
uh, based on the amount of, of carbon we've already put into the atmosphere. So, you know, sort of endless job possibilities um, for people who, um, you know, may not have jobs otherwise. And, and I think we could, you know, see climate change as a way to get to uh, actual full employment, um, which is, is something that's kind of scary for economists to talk about, um, but but is a real, um, I think could be a real sort of uh, kick in the ass, for lack of a better word, um, to, to, you know, hold, um, to make that happen and, and to, hold people like Trump, uh, hold it up for, for a screen with people like Trump and say, why are you, you know, keeping millions of Americans out of work um, by not not seeing this transition as the greatest, greatest job creator in generations? It seems that one real challenge with with talking about climate change is that compared to the sea, touch and smell pollution of burning rivers and dirty air that catalyzed the modern environmental movement in the 60s and 70s, that climate change is just so diffuse in its causes and effects um, compared to previous environmental problems and to prior eras of capitalism. So how do you suggest that climate change be broken down into a way where the cause and effects can be understood in a way that connects to these these issues around political economy that are most salient for people. One of the best examples of of, um, of the right kind of doing this is is um, how the national debt became this issue that people suddenly care about. I mean, the national debt is like this kind of fiction. Um, not that it doesn't exist, but the way Republicans have talked about it since I think this happened in like the mid '90s or or so. Um, was, you know, just deploying these really effective uh, propaganda techniques. Uh, I think Frank Luntz wrote something um, during a budget negotiation in in 1994. Um, I I forget the publication, but he said, uh, you know, if hardworking Americans have to sit down at the table and balance their budget, then why doesn't Washington? Um, Which is not how budgets work at all. (laughs) It's the, you know, most, most, uh, no American uh, has access to um, a central bank. So, you know, it's, it's based in it's total fiction, um, but has become really powerful. And, 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 you know, election cycle after election cycle, you see voters um, ranking the, the, the national debt as like a top priority issue. It's something that, you know, at this point, um, Democrats and Republicans feel accountable to, um, to, to, you know, keeping spending, um, constrained so we don't we don't have we don't drive up the debt um and you know having fears about these kind of vigilante bond holders coming to collect on on america and evading our country um so i'm not saying we have to be that kind of grossly manipulative um <laughs> about, about climate change in part because climate change is real um in some sense it's much more real than than the debt but uh i i think you know, that's a good example of, of, you know, it's not impossible to make something that can seem um, diffuse, that can seem um, sort of abstract uh, into a real material issue. And I think, again, part of the way to do that um, is tying it back to people's kind of material concerns um, and really wedding, wedding climate change to a more redistributive economic agenda. I think this sort of brings us back to that New York magazine piece in terms of the question of how to talk about how terrifying climate change is. If, on the one hand, if the future does look catastrophic, 
shouldn't we be honest, even if that honest picture is horrifying? But on the other hand, I think there's a really strong possibility that painting those sort of catastrophic pictures inspires fatalism and, and freezes people and, and makes them kind of nihilistic. How do you how, how do you think it should be approached? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, my, my sort of like knee jerk reaction to that piece um, was that we shouldn't engage in this kind of um, this kind of just like scary, like doomsday, doomsday scenario, because I think on some level, it, it really does turn people off and makes people kind of shut down um, thinking about climate. At the same time, there's something really effective about it. I mean, more people read that story than have probably read any story about, about climate change in a very long time. Um, so it is, you know, does seem to be this kind of effective um, propaganda technique in some way. But I think it is a real, there is a real danger of, of, of making it seem hopeless. And I think part of the way to, to confront that is you can be realistic about what's going to happen. And I think we have kind of a responsibility to um, just not sugarcoat that and not be overly optimistic about the, the situation that we're in, while at the same time presenting real alternatives and, and solutions to it. Um, and I, I think, you know, that requires a sort of different conversation about climate policy than we've had in the U.S. for a long time. Um, just the scale uh, uh, of solutions needed to, um, to to actually take this thing on in earnest are, are a little bit unthinkable in terms of the, the political imagination of the U.S. Um, but I think, you know, th- that kind of really ambitious thinking is, is um is really needed. And, and historically, that, that kind of thinking has come from the left. And I think that's, that's why, um, you know, the left has a really, I think, specific role to play in this. And that I don't see, um, you know, I don't see the kind of um, calls for nationalization, for job guarantees, those sorts of things coming from either the center or, um, or the right, certainly. Um, so I, I think, you know, in terms of presenting a better narrative about climate change than we have now across a political spectrum. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, the left plays a, plays a really specific role and, and needs to play more of a role than it is now. I want to get into some of the policymaking history here. And before we do that, can you briefly define what cap and trade is and what a carbon tax is? Sure. Sure. So um, a carbon tax, maybe it makes more sense to start there, is uh, kind of what it sounds like. So it taxes um, major polluters for um, the amount of carbon they put into the atmosphere. Uh, Often it's seen as sort of a pass through tax um, uh, by which, you know, if you uh, put, say, a hundred dollar tax on carbon for um, gas companies, um, they will pass, you know, a dollar increase in the price of a gallon of gas um, down to um, down to consumers. That's not, you know, the, the math there isn't exactly correct, but uh, basically that that um, companies will offset this tax to uh, down, they'll downstream it basically and, and have consumers pay that out. Um, cap and trade. Uh, is, is somewhat similar in that some versions of it also operate essentially as a tax. Uh, as a tax, um, but the kind of crux of cap and trade um, is that there are a certain amount of credits allotted by the government um, that firms can can purchase. Um, so you know, if you're a coal or gas company or even like a big factory, um, you can buy up a certain amount of credits. 
um, and that is the amount, uh, those credits correlate to the amount of, of, of carbon you can uh, emit uh, in, in a given cycle. Sometimes those are uh, those are auctioned off quarterly, sometimes yearly, um, depends on depends on the system. Um, they also often in cap and trade, um, it allows for the creation of, of carbon markets, um, which are, are, I think, rightfully pretty controversial. Um, so that if you um, purchase amount of credits and you use less, um, you pollute less uh, than the amount of, of uh, credits you've purchased, um, then you can sell those to other people. Um, and, and that price becomes sort of speculative um, and, and uh, can carry over in some cases um, from year to year to year. Um, and, you know, these, these proposals vary tremendously um, in terms of how they actually work. Sometimes there's a floor and a ceiling on, on the price of the credit. Um, and as you might be able to tell, cap and trade is a tremendously <laughs> complicated um, program uh, to, to explain to, to really anyone who is not um, not deeply enmeshed in these conversations. I think that was a pretty good summary. Um, now let's dive into the political history around those policies. I want to rewind a bit and talk about the Obama administration's track record on climate change. First, his 2010 push for cap and trade failed. Um, explain what that was and why it didn't work out. Yeah, so um, for folks who don't know, cap and trade um, is a system by which you know you, you hand out a certain amount of credits um, or sell a certain amount of credits to uh, major polluters um, that determine how much uh, how much they can emit um, in a, in a given cycle. Um, so Obama made kind of one of his big early uh, pushes in, in his, his first term. Um, check out this program passed, um, and a lot of kind of green organizations, uh, mainstream green organizations, lined up behind it um, and, and, and tried to, you know, push through a program. And, and eventually, um, at some point in, in the negotiation process, uh, became a plan to push through any anything that could pass. Um, so the kind of final version um, of Waxman-Markey, which ended up getting voted down, um, would have greatly constrain the EPA's ability to regulate pollution. Um, so I think, you know, why it failed, Theta Scotchpole has a, has a really sort of in-depth report on this that, that's about 130 pages, but um, is definitely worth it for anyone, anyone thinking about, um, thinking about this. But um, on, on, you know, one of the, the big, big things she, she talks about um, is how cap and trade is a, a sort of you know confusing thing <laughs> to explain to people, and, and uh, the green organizations in um, the process of trying to bring in big business, trying to appeal to Republicans and centrist Democrats, um, really forsake any kind of grassroots support that they had um, for getting getting a bill passed. Um, so you know you saw it even in, in the kinds of staffing they were investing in, and that these big green organizations who were really deeply involved in the fight for cap and trade. Um, disinvested from um, from their field organizing teams and invested in kind of lobbying staff in Washington um, and, you know, kind of gave up on, on trying to win people over um, to, to this issue. Um, and, you know, the 
bigger question is like, is this a, a good issue um, to begin with? I mean, yeah, so it's, is, it's bad politics. So what is it on policy? On policy, I mean, it's it's uh, hard to draw direct links between um, cap and trade and a carbon tax, which is a sort of related proposal that plays a similar role politically. Um, it's hard to draw links between those policies and their ability to actually bring down emissions. Um, so the main people who love these policies, um, a carbon tax especially, a little bit less so, um, cap and trade, are economists. Like something like 95% of economists um, support uh, support carbon taxes or you know a, a kind of suite of market-based approaches to solving climate change. Uh, with really no connection to like how how well they actually get the job done, um, which there is no real comprehensive study of, of how well um, carbon taxes do bring down emissions. I mean, there have been um, there have been you know some sort of piecemeal studies, but it's really hard to parse out how much uh, how much a carbon tax um, or cap and trade being implemented in a certain place um, has contributed to bringing down emissions versus um, either, you know, closing coal-fired power plants, um, enforcing regulations at a greater scale, or things like, you know, the recession. So a lot of these policies got passed um, around 2008, 2009, uh, and there was, you know, one of the sharpest drop-offs in emissions um, this century was from, um, from the recession and kind of a, a, a downturn in economic activity. Um, and so people sometimes point to that, to that, um, that reduction as, you know, oh, a carbon tax did that, we can, you know, herald a carbon tax as a good, as a good policy, um, when, you know, it's, it's really sort of hard to parse that out, and I think is, is arguably has more to do, um, more to do with the recession and other factors than it does uh, to these market-based mechanisms. To conclude that discussion, cap-and-trade and a carbon tax, are they, are they, imperfect but desirable solutions or just really bad ideas that we should oppose? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the complicated part of this discussion is that I actually think a, a carbon tax, um, a carbon tax especially, is a really common sense thing. It's, it's fair. I mean, the, the, the kind of economistic argument that gets made isn't wrong, uh, that uh, high polluting firms are not paying for uh, the true price for what they're putting into the atmosphere. So we should pass a carbon tax. They're, they're externalities. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I think we should pass a carbon tax in in no small part because it's a good way um, to raise money, uh, especially like a state level um, where where budgets are a little more constrained. Um, having a carbon tax can you know fund transition programs, can fund investment in low income communities, um, can be used to do all these good things. I don't think we should pretend it's going to bring down emissions dramatically. Um, but I do think it's, you know, can be useful. I think to get to what's called also, deep, deep decarbonization. Right. Right. But yeah, I think it makes sense as kind of a larger, um, one piece of kind of a larger suite of policies. Um, but as kind of a landmark, the band, which it has been, um, for the last several years is something, you know, that's worth kind of rallying big public support around and that kind of plays an outsized role in the conversation about climate policy. I don't, I don't think it makes sense in part because, you know, it's two things um, that, that are really hard to build public support around. People don't really care about carbon um, 
on sort of a emotional level um, and people don't like taxes <laughs> uh, generally so it's combining these two things which are a, a pretty hard sell so I think you know there are other other sorts of big policies you can point to um, that would potentially be easier to garner political support behind. So in a nutshell what are the key things that need to happen to achieve deep decarbonization if a carbon tax is a starting point but nowhere close to enough? Well, I don't know if it's a starting point. I mean, I think there are probably other starting points um, which make more sense. I mean, the big thing, and it's tough, it's a little bit tough to think about how this translates into like a real policy uh, discussion is that we need a carbon budget. Um, You need to constrain the ability of big polluters um, to pollute. Um, And the big way to do that, I think, is to, I mean, I've said it before, but to, to nationalize fossil fuel companies, um, to, to bring them under public ownership. Um, and there are precedents for that. In other places, um, there you know, are other, other things you can do, like sort of limiting the um, production of, uh, of combustion vehicles. Um, Denmark just did this, I think. Um, I think they're phasing out combustion-powered cars by 2030, um, which is sort of a common sense Common sense policy, um, different cities, um, especially cities, you know, that, that have a kind of public sphere that makes it easier to do this and have bigger budgets um, can start making kind of decarbonization plans. Um, some places are already doing this. Uh, and I think a part of that, too, uh, is municipalizing um, utilities um, or, you know, kind of kind of um, bringing utilities under public ownership in a deeper way and kind of getting rid of um investor-owned, investor-owned uh, electricity, uh, which is, you know, not only kind of uh, price gouging and, and uh, polluting, but also has, as a recent study from Inside Climate News um, has shown, uh, they have been engaged in the same sort of like climate denial propaganda that, that ExxonMobil has been um, and play this sort of, have this sort of corrosive um, influence on, on, on politics. My last question for you, returns to Trump and Trumpism. When we think about far right or right wing nationalism, the the problems associated with that, understandably, that typically come to mind are things like xenophobia and racism and militarism. And it's obvious why those things um, are are such immediate concerns with with people like Trump and Marie, Marine Le Pen. But far-right nationalism also poses a really critical political obstacle, I think, to the sort of mindset that we need to confront the ecological crisis, which is a more global universalist one. Yeah, it's it's hard to know exactly where to start with the relationship between the far-right and climate because there are you know, just so many sort of horrifying connections. I mean... Uh, on the one level, uh, as we've seen in Syria, uh, these kind of historic droughts that the Middle East is, has been experiencing, which are very much linked to climate change, um, have been a big contributing factor to increasing kind of political destabilization in the region, um, which has driven kind of migration into parts of Europe, which has, of course, fueled the rise of these far-right um, groups. And these far-right groups tend to be climate deniers. Um, this is true in the UK. It's true in Germany. Um, I don't it's it's sort of true in France. So the 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 Front National's climate politics are a little a little thorny, um, and then they you know 
bring into power these governments, which uh, have the potential to bring into power um, governments which are uh, outright deniers and and will fuel even more um, even more uh, harmful policies, which which you know stand to stand to exacerbate climate change. Um, so it's this real sort of like feedback loop um, of, 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 you know, political destabilization as connected to climate change, drive migration. Um, and of course, you know, whatever scenario we, we go, wherever we go from here, um, many, many people will have to, um, will have to migrate. I mean, there are some projections um, like in Bangladesh where there have been these sort of historic floods, um, 1,200 people have died, I think. Um, last I saw, um, but estimates say 50 million Bangladeshis will have to, um, will 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 we'll be forced to migrate if we if we um, pollute as we do. So, um, in terms of you know how the far right deals um, with migration, I think that that's a big question. I think will become even more politically important in the next in the next several years. Kate Aronoff, thanks so much. Thank you. Kate Aronoff is a writing fellow at In These Times, covering climate and American politics. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly these days, twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeff Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If you find us on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews don't only feed the Apple Borg, they also put us in touch with new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda on our behalf. And also, find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution so we can keep this thing going.